Josh made reference to his home or the fact that he has a home. And he originally hails from Brookhaven. He's a Mississippi boy, but uh, lives in Spain now. And uh, he's so, don't, can't you just feel the gratitude that he has to God and specifically to our church? And one of the reasons, this is right, Josh, just, Josh, just wave or nod your head if this is affirmative, but uh, we give Josh money to do missionary work, worship work over in Spain. So he loves us for that. So if you give here, uh, we're grateful for that. You allow the church at Fondren to extend itself far beyond the borders as we minister here in the local community and out there in the world. Josh, we thank you for being here, for being a friend and for leading us today in these months. And he led us in Dueling Hall one time and he had like, he was playing the guitar and a, the drum, the bass, it was like Mumford and Sons. He was just getting after it. We're going to do that Mumford and Son thing real soon, I think, with Josh. Before I came in the sanctuary today, my friend Joseph Jordan, he's sitting right over there. He said, hey, Robert, nice vest. Are you going to work the blackjack table? Which proves that Joseph can get in my head before the sermon, but I can call Joseph out during the sermon. <laughs> I want to begin this morning telling you about something that I learned this week, something I learned about this week, about some real special guys. A couple of them, or one of them is on the front row drinking coffee. He's only 11. But uh, my friend, a real special young man, Haddon McLeod, I heard hatched an idea and he wanted to grow in his faith. He wanted to grow in his friends, grow his friendships. And he got a couple of guys, Will Gibbs and Wesley Green, the last name you may recognize because he's mine. And they got together one morning. Now look, little guys want to be like big guys, right? So they decide they're going to get together early, well before school, about an hour before school. They're going to meet at Primo's. Of course, they need rides. They bum rides off their parents. And one of the dads had to sit a couple of booths over so he could take them to school when it was done. But Wesley, my son, came up with a few questions. Five questions he wanted, they wanted to discuss, these three boys. And here they are, uh, entitled, Taking God's Path. What can you do to get closer to God? How will you take a stand for Christ? What has God laid on your heart? How can we spread the gospel? How will you be a godly example to others? How great is that? Can I, yeah. I have learned, or let me say, I am learning every time now that I use one of my kids as a sermon example, I get their approval, right? Their written approval. But for real, what, can I tell you what that does to, to a dad? Um, I would say there are no words for that. But scripture, 3 John 4, gives me words for that. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. That word joy is amplified this morning from 3 John 4, because that's what I want us to talk about, joy. You got it? So when you walk away, hey, what did the preacher talk about today at Fonder? He talked about, talked about joy. And we're learning about Nehemiah and so many great ideas. I've shared it each week, I think, if you're an artist, an entrepreneur, an innovator, a leader in church, a business nonprofit leader, you're going to plant a church or start something one day. Nehemiah has lessons, just so many lessons for you. And what I love about Nehemiah, really maybe my favorite phrase in all of Nehemiah, I bet you've heard this, I bet you've heard me say it, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's what I want to talk about this morning, joy and specifically, the joy of the Lord being your strength. Every word is going to count. The joy of the Lord is your strength. 
The Persians were, were, were about four or 500 BC. That's the era of this, this writing. And you've learned if you've been here or been able to listen online that uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king. The Persians had conquered the Assyrians who had conquered the Babylonians. And King Artaxerxes is leading the Persian people. He's the most powerful person in the world. There's uh, two candidates on the left and four on the right, and they're all vying for, to be the president of the United States. A former one was at Cups in Fondren this week. A potential one is coming to, tomorrow to uh, Madison Central, the most important person in America. Therefore, many believe, I bet you do, the most important person in the world. And the most important person at that time was a man named Artaxerxes. He was the king, large and in charge. He was in a, a place called Susa, S-U-S-A. Put an N on the end, and that's how you spell my wife's name. He was in Susa, and Nehemiah the cupbearer heard. What did he hear? He heard about Jerusalem. He heard that the walls had fallen, that the gates had burned down, and that the people were being diminished and some even being destroyed. His heart breaks. Scripture tells us in Nehemiah that he weeps and mourns, prays, and fasts. Don't you want that in a leader? Somebody to say, I care. We've talked about a God-given burden, not a passing concern, but something that's worth your energy, a vision worth living for, something to do. God gives that to Nehemiah. I love his words later. The gracious hand of God was upon me. What a gift to have your heart broken for something and then to see God's hand on you. And Nehemiah knew that the cause was great. Nehemiah knew, we said, that it would take time. It would involve danger and it would require financial resources. And Nehemiah didn't just have a broken heart and sit in negative introspection and not do anything. He didn't sit and sulk, but he boldly got up and he asked big favors and requests from the king. That's what a great leader does, y'all. I've said it to you. Young people, hear me. You can tell what someone believes in by what they ask for. And you serve a God. Your Lord says, ask, seek, knock. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, seek, and knock. What are you asking God for? And if you're taking on a cause, you're asking other people. Because have you noticed? I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today. None of us would be where we are today if you didn't ask, right? If you didn't have some door openers and some door holders and some people helping you along the way. And Nehemiah goes to the king and he says, I need time off. I need resources, I need security, I need, it's gonna take a lot, and he goes, and at night, he does a clandestine inspection, we called it. He just surveys, because a good leader will look, a good leader knows, he's gotta count the cost, and he does. And he begins to enlist people, but as we've said, Nehemiah faced opposition, angry opposition, mockery and sarcasm, fatigue, discouragement, threats and intimidation. And we've been learning about a couple of guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, and they were just unrelenting nemesis in the life of Nehemiah. At one point, they said to him, hey, come on down off the wall here. I want to talk to you. They didn't want him. They didn't want a city rebuilt because their power could be threatened. Conservative people typically like things the way they are, right? Because there's power there. There's comfort there. And that's what they felt that threat. Plus, they were probably just jealous that Nehemiah had such a great relationship with the king. Some of us just don't like successful people, do we? And Nehemiah, despite the time that it took, the danger that it involved, and the resources that it required, and the opposition that he faced, he stayed after it. And Sanballat, we've learned somewhat humorously, it tells us that Sanballat was, uh, he, he invited Nehemiah, what, down to the land, to the valley of Ono. And Nehemiah said, 
Oh no. And one of my, maybe my second favorite phrase in Nehemiah chapter six and verse two, it's this phrase right here. It shows his focus. I am carrying on a great project and cannot come down. Focus. It is distractions. It is the distractions in your life that can potentially destroy you. God, give us focused leaders. Give us leaders who are not easily discouraged but have fierce resolve who say, hey, I'm not coming down. This is a great work that God is calling us to do. And it's almost anticlimactic. It shouldn't be. But in that same chapter, verse, uh, same chapter, verse, uh, chapter six, I'm not talking well. I'm, I'm just stuttering here. We'll get it figured out. Slow down brain, pat your foot, rub your belly, look at your sweater vest, think about blackjack. And here's what we're going to say in the, in the same chapter, chapter six, it says to us that the wall was rebuilt. It was done. We asked Nehemiah the question when he was going through all the angry opposition, the mockery, sarcasm, the discouragement and fatigue, the threats and intimidation from Sanballat, Tobiah and an ever increasing resistance movement. Nehemiah, do you want to quit? And Nehemiah said, no, I'm not going to quit until the work is finished. I'm not coming down off the wall. This is a great work. God, give us leaders. Give us leaders in the church. Give us leaders in the global church. Give us leaders in America. Give us leaders in this church and in this city that will say, this is a great work that you've called us to. And there are many people who want to go to lunch with me. And there are many people who want to distract me. And some of them do not have my best interest at heart. And I am not coming down off the wall until the wall is completed. And we said last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter eight, where the people gathered. And Nehemiah, who was a visionary activist and a gifted administrator, he took a back seat. All of a sudden, you see a man step up, a priest, a scribe, a teacher of the law, a man named Ezra. And he stepped up and he led the people. Ezra chapter seven, uh, there's a reference here. And I've never shared this with our church, but it's a verse that's meant as much to me as almost any in all the Bible. When I was in college, it was a verse that oriented my life, the rest of my life. It says this about Ezra, that he set his heart to study, to teach, and to practice. That's a voice I heard when I was in college. I heard a lot of voices in college. But later in college, I heard one, not an audible one, don't freak out, don't leave just yet. But I heard God speaking to me, and I heard a call to say, Robert, this is your call, but you need to set your heart to study, to teach, and to practice. And for me, that's a wall. It's, it's a call in my life. So Nehemiah steps back, and as we learned, if you were here last week, Ezra led the people, and they had a six-hour sermon. And remember last week, if you were here, you stood up and said, go, Robert, go, preach on, preach on. Five and a half more hours. Remember, you chanted five and a half more hours. Five and a half, it was a little phonetically awkward, but five and a half more, remember that? Is that just up here or what happened there? But they went six hours. Scripture tells us in Nehemiah 8 from morning to midday. No singing, Josh, at the time. They should have, but no singing. They just heard the word and it said they were broken. And we talked about last week that God meets people at the intersection of hope and pain. They had hope. Why? Because the wall was rebuilt. They had a chance. You're saying there's a chance. They had a chance. But they had pain because they had a lot of uneasiness. They had been pillaged and raped and some of their people destroyed. So they were, and they worried about their future. We got this wall, we got some protection, but what now? 
What now after the wall? They praised God. And we learned last week that the people were broken. That the leader that was broken, whose heart was broken, he led the people. Ezra steps up. The reading of the word led to their brokenness. You know, when we gather together, there ought to be confession. When we gather with one another, we ought to confess our sins to one another. Scripture doesn't have a lot of affirmation to concealment and cover up and containment. It talks a lot about confession. Matt will make a few people nervous in the room, but back in December, a few weeks before Christmas, across the street, we were at a a community group, a small group that we led. And I just, I don't know what precipitated this, but I just asked all the couples, there's six couples, six other couples. And I said, hey, have you guys ever flipped anybody off? Like on the road, any road rage? And one of the guys, I mean, this wasn't totally random. Something made me ask the question, right? And one of the guys in the group said, yeah, just, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And then someone else in the group said, you know, uh, my husband sitting right here, uh, he would probably never flip anybody off, but he does get road rage and he wants to teach them a lesson right? Like we got, our, we got our little boy in the back, but he wants to teach him a lesson. And then one woman in our group said, oh, I would never flip anybody off, never have on the road, but if they don't let me in traffic, I give them kind of a sarcastic wave, like that. And I thought, man, this group is getting real. This group's got sin. These people are troubled. They don't need, they don't need to be in the pastor's group, right? They're not worthy of us. No, the truth is I'm being playful and a little bit flippant, but the truth is when we do get together, we do need to share. We don't need to act like we're pristine and perfect, that the mistakes of the world and what's common to flesh and blood humanity doesn't happen in our hearts. And whether we act on it or have an attitude about it, because that's what Jesus would say later, Jesus's words, does the master teacher penetrate greater than any other ever? He said, just the attitude of just the thought of it. But when we gather, we ought to be real with each other and confess. And that's what happened here with these people. But, but Nehemiah, they're told here in chapter 8 to, to party, to have a, a divine celebration. And this morning as we talk about joy, I want to I focus on what it really means. Some people now will say this, some people... Some people are joy carriers. Do you know any joy carriers? You, it's easy. The barometer is this. This is the litmus test. You want to be with them. If you work with them or live with them, when you pull up, one friend of mine calls it the parking lot test. If you see their car, you smile because they're there. And a joy carrier is going to bring you life. Here's my advice. If you know a joy carrier, prize them. Thank them. And above all, be with them. But some people, some of us, are joy impaired. And we suck the life out of people. We're committed to be joyless and to live with a victim mentality throughout all of our days. Maybe you've heard the old preacher story. I say it's an old preacher story because it's you know, made up. But there's a, a, a man, a farmer, and the farmer has a neighbor who's joy impaired. The guy never finds happiness in anything. He's always detracting from the farmer for everything that's good in life. This joy-impaired neighbor, he would have gone out on a day like today and found something wrong with it, right? And this man was trying to, to please this person, trying to encourage him to laugh and to enjoy life. And one day the farmer bought an old hunting dog and he trained the dog. And it was uh, known uh, as the world's greatest hunting dog, the, the best trained dog ever. Phenomenal what it could do. And they, the farmer and the dog and the neighbor were out in the field. 
and he showed his unhappy neighbor, hey, this, this dog can sit here for an hour without moving. He can pick up a scent from a mile away. And the joyless neighbor wasn't impressed. So he shoots, the farmer shoots a duck and the duck falls in the middle of the pond and the dog runs, this highly trained dog. And he runs to the water and walks on the water and gets the duck and brings it back and lays it at his master's feet. And the farmer says to him, how about that? And he says, well, I guess your dog can't swim, can he? (laughs) Do you know some people like that? There's wow and wonder and awe and it's right there but they cannot acknowledge it. They certainly can't appreciate it. When Jesus came, he looked into the faces of very grim, sour, scowling, stern religious people. And he shared stories constantly about weddings and a groom and a party that ought to be here and a party that's to come. He hung out with drunkards and he was accused of being a glutton probably because of their festivals. We know Jesus fasted. We know he fasted for 40 days. I bet nobody in the room has done that or very few of you have done that. Jesus fasted for 40 days. He knew the power of the fast, but he knew the power of the feast. He knew the power of a party. And this morning as I talk about joy, I wanna say, and you're, don't moan because this is gonna be fast, I'm gonna quickly share six things about joy. Six things about the joy of the Lord being your strength. The first quickly is joy as celebration. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. Joy as celebration. Let's look at that passage right here. Nehemiah 8, 10. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine. You would think a prophet would say, eat the locusts and wild honey. Eat the Brussels sprouts. Or don't eat at all, right? Fast, because fasting, we've talked about this, fasting is, a, is humbling and it shows us it's disciplining and it, it's, it's denial, it's refining, it's longing. And there's a place for it in the life of everyone who seeks after God. Learn about fast, don't just fast, but learn about it theologically, biologically, in every way. But there's a place for fasting, but there is a place we learn throughout Scripture for feasting. And Nehemiah is saying, hey, it's time for Twinkies and Frito-Lay and some really good drinks. And Nehemiah knew after 52 days of back-breaking wall building, he knew that all work and no play makes for a dull people and a dull church. He knew that all service and no celebration would lead to weary people. In the life of a leader, if you lead other people, if you take on great projects, you will have to serve. You will have to put people in their area of gifting. We see that in Nehemiah. And there are the moments when it's a great cause where everybody comes together. Morale goes high. We've said historically and contextually that in Jerusalem, they hadn't seen this in over 100, really 150 years since the exile to have the morale so high because everybody was pitching in, not the opposition, but everybody that was on board. And Nehemiah is saying, let's party. We have work, but let's rest and let's party. Joy as celebration. There are 60 different references like this in the scripture. Celebrate. From the Old Testament, from the early books, from the law of Moses and all, we think it's grim all the time. We think it's dutiful, obligation and drudgery. But in, the, in these early books, we see a call for God's people. These are divine commands to party. Go party, God tells his people. 
Go party. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Celebrate the Feast of Harvest. Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Celebrate the most famous one we know of, the Passover. And these weren't little tea parties, little quaint, sedate tea parties. These were most of the time loud, raucous, dance-in-the-street shindigs where people partied. And God desires for us to have joy as celebration. Not, let me say, not as hedonistic celebration, not that philosophy that the Greeks would later make famous, which is seek pleasure at all costs, pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure to your own personal gratification and to the hurt of others. We, we are in many ways an ignorant society. We say, I'm doing this and I'm not hurting anybody, but we're blind to who we're hurting. And many times we're hurting ourselves. And you've heard me or someone teach before the law of diminishing returns. Do you get that? What, what brought you joy yesterday no longer does it anymore. And if it's just a hedonistic pursuit where it's not a savoring of God's gifts and the giver of the gifts, it can, so, it can lead to a philosophy that's going to hurt you, that's going to hurt other people. The law of diminishing returns. What gave you joy yesterday is not going to work today. That's why young people, we talk about God's protection. When he gives us a command or a law, it's not to hurt us, it's to protect us, and it's to provide for us. The law of diminishing returns hurts a lot of us. This is joy as celebration. Secondly, it's joy as choice. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 12, we see that the people that they, when they were going away, it said that they understood. Do we have that verse, chapter 8 and verse 12? And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Remember part of their brokenness and confession? They weren't like our group confessing road rage. They were confessing deeper sins, real sins. They haven't exploited the poor. They have not cared for the needy. We are not just going to have feasts, but we are going to share. We are going to give to those who don't have need. You see that in Nehemiah. It's God's heart for the world we live in. They made great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You see, joy is a celebration. Joy is a choice. And you have to understand what joy is and what joy is not. Somebody who said, I don't know who it was, the source, as I've studied it this week, is anonymous, but joy is not getting what you want, it's appreciating what you have. Now, can I just say, that's a home run, slam dunk, touchdown pass. Joy is not getting what you want, it's appreciating what you have. I remember not too long ago being in an airport terminal, and our plane was delayed. And mostly, there were just a bunch of depressed people complaining people. It's a culture of complaint. And we were looking. We knew the plane was delayed because the screen said so, and so did the faces of all these bored-weary travelers. But one guy was smiling and laughing and looking at the runway with just wide-eyed wonder. Every takeoff was a cause for celebration Every landing was a reason to rejoice. At one point, he would scream and he got on the floor. He was rolling with laughter, this four-year-old boy. Some of us say, man, we had a great time last night. We were, we were rolling with laughter. No, you weren't. You were standing up or sitting down. You had your arms crossed. You weren't rolling with laughter. This little kid was rolling around on the floor with laughter. Joy's not always getting what you want. It's appreciating what you have. And I remember writing at that time in a journal this idea right here. Little children don't have more to celebrate. They just celebrate more things. 
And your Lord said to you, to us, in Matthew 18, if you want to come into the kingdom of heaven, who doesn't? If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be like this, these religious people. No, no, Mm-mm. you must be like this child. In fact, Jesus brings it strong. Some people think Jesus is soft. Jesus brought it strong. He said, in fact, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have the heart of a child. You're not called to be childish, okay? Guys who won't grow up, man, man look at me. I'm not saying be like your woman wants you to grow up, okay? Grow up, don't be childish. Mature, okay? Be mature. But all of us need to be childlike. Little children, they celebrate and they teach us how to celebrate. And this choice, this choice is the third thing I want to say. It's joy as relationship. Joy as relationship. It's true in this context. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. But if you see the communal aspect, he's really saying to us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our strength together. What I love about Nehemiah, and I shared this last week, we are not preaching this book line by line, verse by verse. We're looking at it thematically. You wouldn't want me to preach it line by line, verse by verse. Go read Nehemiah. Now, I believe it's all infallible. I believe it's all inspired. I'll back that up. I'll defend it. I'll talk about it uh, one-on-one. But there's just a list of a lot of names. But what I love about that is a leadership principle. It's not uh, genealogy. It's a listing of names of people who participated, people who helped out. You'll see eventually high-class people helped out. They didn't want to at first. They griped and complained. Moving these bricks, it's too good for me, too too low for me. But people pitched in and people used their gifts and morale was high and he lists their names. And that's a a principle of leadership, of a good leader, right? Nehemiah was able to identify people. He knew their names. He noted their accomplishments. And over and over, there's this call to be together, to work together, to serve together, and oh, by the way, to rejoice together. One of my faves, Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice. Is that easy for you? Rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans chapter 12. Don't limit your life by just celebrating your own triumphs. You have people around you, people that you're called to. And even if you're in some malaise, even if you're kind of in a pocket of of boredom or maybe just a lack of achievement, nothing that seems noteworthy in your life, there's some people around you, rejoice with them. God's working in them, rejoice with them. What if you rejoiced in the promotion of a coworker or you rejoiced in a neighbor's grass being greener than yours? Now it gets difficult to think about that, right? When it gets real, but rejoice with those. Joy in relationship. Paul would write to the church at Philippi and he would write about joy. He wrote from a prison, but he's tackled the subject of joy. If you want to sum up Philippians in one word, it's the word joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. What about always? Well, you don't know. Always. Have you thought? Always. You don't know what's in my? Always. You don't know what's so Always. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. But in the church, you know what threatened their joy? Relational breakdown. Philippians 4.2. If we get back up, Philippians 4.2. I entreat Udiah and I entreat Sintish to agree in the Lord. Now you're laughing at me and you think, man, I hadn't handled the Bible accurately. Go to YouTube, biblical pronunciations, and type in that word. It'll give you, it'll give you a voice. It's a woman's voice and it says, Sintish. And here's the trouble about Eudodia and Sintish. 
is that it reminds me of Fonzie in Happy Days. I was, I was, but Eudodia and had trouble getting along. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what their disagreement was, probably their names. I'm not sure. You didn't have to think of any creative names, right? When I would get insulted or I insult my friends or Joseph, Jordan, and I insult each other, we call each other names, right? They just call each other their actual name. <laughs> but they had trouble, and Paul urges them to agree in the Lord. He urges them, because you always want to do that, that you go to the direct source of those who can't get along, and you urge them to come together because it's really important. He, God desires that his church be unified. In verse three, he urges all the church to come around them. Uh, I, yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And I love this because you want a good leader thinks of the end whose names are in the book of life. There's an eternity waiting on us out there. And as C.S. Lewis says, what we weave in time, we wear in eternity. And one of the things God wants us to weave in this time is joy and rejoicing and joy and rejoicing together. And Paul knew that there would be a joy breakdown if relationships broke down. Holding grudges, growing in our anger, having an inability to reconcile does not make the church, the bride of Christ, be as beautiful as it needs to look to other people. And let's be real. A lot of us have been hurt in this. This is very personal for some of us. But here the scripture, Paul is saying, I implore you because unity matters. And then Philippians 4, 4, we jumped ahead on that. But here it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in relationships. Backing up, rejoice is celebration. Rejoice is a choice. Rejoice in relationships. And fourthly, I want to say this. Um, rejoice right now. A lot of you know this teachers and pastors and youth workers used it against you when you were a kid and in a bad mood in the morning. But the psalmist says, this is the day the Lord has made. Finish it with me if you know it. We will rejoice and be glad in it this day. This day, Howard Hendricks, a seminary professor I took one time at Dallas, he says that most of us, all of us really live with a museum of memories or an encyclopedia of expectations. We're thinking of the past. We're thinking of stuff in the future. And the psalmist is saying, today, rejoice right now, today. And rejoice, is this the fifth thing? Rejoice regardless. The people of Nehemiah, they could have gone away. They could have gone away and they could have gone back to the way that it was. They could have gone back to fear and negativity, to weariness and discouragement. But he said to them, man, rejoice and rejoice regardless. There are, there are things in your life that don't seem favorable at this point. Quickly, three phrases from three different Psalms. The first, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Do you get that? God doesn't have his head in the sand. He's not saying, let everything work out your way and then you rejoice. He's saying, even let the afflicted rejoice. When you are afflicted, when things are not favorable in your life, when something's really hard, rejoice. Second Psalm, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad, even when you don't feel on the top of your game. Next, Psalm 30, one of the I will, here we go. I will sacrifice, that's the same verse. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. It's not natural. 
but you began to sing. One of the beautiful things about church history is to see our history, to see the history of the church, to see the history of of God's people, to see God's beautiful work and the people in colonial America, in the African-American community, people that were marginalized and looked past, people that were persecuted and pushed away, and to see the beauty of people coming together and singing and rejoicing and offering it as a sacrifice of joy. Lastly, in this psalm, do we have another one? And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. He goes on in Psalm 30 to talk about how God's anger, it only lasts for a little while, but then there's joy in the morning. Skip down, if you will, for his anger, verse five. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but will you read that with me out loud if you can see it? But rejoicing comes in the morning. Rejoice now, offered as a sacrifice. Even when you're humbled, even when you're afflicted, even when things aren't going your way, offer the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of rejoicing to God, knowing that there will be a day. And as later as Paul would say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for thus. There is coming a day when there's real joy. It's in the morning. You're going to have to, you and I are going to have to wait for it. Lastly, as we close, joy as strength. Joy is strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Three things, super fast. Just thought bombs. If you're a note taker, you'll want to get these. The first statement is this. Rejoicing helps us arrange life so that sin no longer looks good to us. This from one of my favorite writers, the late Dallas Willard, USC philosophy professor who died this past year. Rejoicing helps us arrange life so that sin no longer looks good to us. What looks good to us, you and I, we make as idols. We make them as idols and we think this or this or this is going to bring me all the happiness and the joy that I need. Kyle Eidelman, a pastor, puts it this way. Idols are not destroyed by being removed, but by being replaced. The strength, when you have joy, it helps you overcome temptation. As one writer says, when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely and you're tired, you're more vulnerable and things look good and you set other things up that can be for you a cause of strength and rejoicing. And God wants you to find those things in him, but you're not gonna defeat, you're not gonna destroy those idols, those things that you're trying to make you happy, that you wanna make happy, that aren't. You're gonna have to not just remove them, you're gonna have to replace them with the joy of the Lord. When I find my joy in Christ, sin does not look so good to me. And I'm called to arrange my life to enjoy the gifts God has given me I see a lot of pastors who fall, a lot of leaders who fall because they're not honoring the Sabbath. They're not taking their vacation. They're not understanding how to deal with the obstacles that throw God, uh, people throw their way and that God wants to call them out of. But enjoy the gifts and enjoy the giver of those gifts. God desires for you to know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Pray with me.